welcome to this rather special episode of Need for Speech. Today I have a very special guest with me and uh, that is actually my granddad. As the title of this podcast says, Space, the Final Frontier. So my granddad was actually one of those Indian scientists at NASA who are frequently mentioned on WhatsApp forwards and uh, whatnot. So I'm really glad he's here in India. And I'm sure it must be very nice to escape the cold wave that is going across northeastern United States and just not being in DC and enjoying the weather here in Pune. Oh, thank you, <clears> Tanay. <throat> uh, I'm really enjoying definitely the weather here and uh, uh, I'm glad to talk to you. So let's just get right into it. So please tell us about how you kind of, you know, applied to... Uh, universities in the US after your graduation and what was it like leaving Mumbai and just going to a foreign country back in the 70s when it wasn't really a big thing as big of a thing as uh, it is now? Well I, I actually graduated uh, from Sadar Kapatel College of Engineering in Mumbai and which had a lot of Gujarati uh, students uh, because it's a Bhartiya Vidya Bhavan College and many of them went to U.S. and so I kind of started thinking about it, but it took me three years to uh, figure out uh, the finances for it. And finally, when everything came together, I went to U.S. in 1970. I went to Athens, in, uh, Ohio University in Athens, Ohio. <clears throat> and basically, like I, I was, I did my master's there in industrial and systems engineering. At that time, I didn't have green card, so it was difficult to find a job. Uh, I had a friend, and I didn't know anybody in the United States, uh, but I had a friend in uh, school uh, who was actually from Iran, and he actually had a, uh, found a job in Washington, D.C., and so he invited me there, and I went there. And naturally, even though I was an engineer, uh, there were no engineering jobs in Washington, D.C. All Washington, D.C. produces is paper. But there is one <coughs> thing in Washington, D.C., and that is Goddard Space Flight Center. And uh, I was lucky enough to find a job for a contractor who was... Uh, uh, working for Goddard Space Flight Center. That's how my journey to <coughs> activities related to NASA started. Uh, so uh, what was it like uh, being one of the first ones of the family to you know, kind of step out of the country for the first time and settling there and just kind of starting from scratch? Because m most of the students who go there now, we have the internet, we know what life is like in America. We have the cultural exposure through sitcoms and movies and everything. But I'm sure back in the 70s, you must have had a bit of a cultural shock, first of all, going there. And also, uh, find, like finding, carving out a niche for yourself. Just, just Can you please uh, talk about that for a second? Oh, sure. First of all, it's like uh, we at that time had very big misconception about United States. All we knew about was that the oh, United States is a uh, land of plenty. It's like Sonia Chilanka. It's almost like <coughs> the feeling was that as soon as you go to the United States at the airport, there is somebody sitting there giving you everything that you want. And that's not the reality, basically. First of all, as soon as you sit in the plane, suddenly you realize that now you are leaving India and there is no avenue to return quickly because it's expensive. It was So basically, it was like now that I have started, I have to continue. I didn't know anybody in the United States, literally. And so it was a very lonely feeling. It was a very scary feeling. One of the things, though, I have to admit that there are a lot of Americans who helped me, including my advisor and each university has a foreign student advisor also and that gentleman helped me a lot right from helping me find a place to live and getting adjusted and I had not taken enough money when I went there. He made sure that the, the university still kept me 
till I got my money from United from India and. Uh, so then, as time went, I made friends with Indians as well as Americans. Actually, my two roommates were Americans. I, I made friendship with them. Then I got exposed to a lot of American things. And basically, once after a couple of months, the loneliness went away. But the fear was always there because uh, the economy wasn't at, that good at that time. I didn't have a green card, and so I, I didn't know what will happen after I graduated from college. It worked out fine because uh, I was lucky enough uh, to do a lot of programming in uh, when I was doing my master's. So I could not only look for an engineer's job, but I also could look for a programmer's job, and I ended up being a programmer for this company, and that's how it started. So can you uh, now tell us about your initial days at Goddard Space Flight Center working for a contractor, working for NASA? And uh, I think this this was in 1972, as you mentioned, and this was like right during the moon missions and the space race was at its peak and everyone felt like, oh, by the end of like 2001, Space Odyssey was going to be real. We were going to have moon bases by the turn of the millennium. And so just can you just give us a brief insight into how you started working at NASA and just just your journey of starting from a junior level programmer to pretty much heading NASCOM. Well, actually, the, the, the difference was that at that time, uh, the communication systems as well as the computer systems were very slow compared to today's. Uh, IBM 360-95 was supposed to be the fastest, biggest computer it took almost a whole house, or maybe more than that. It mostly was not as powerful as your cell phone. And at that time, uh, it used to be funny that we used to do orbit determination, which means that one of the things that we had to do was find out uh, or uh, based on a particular vector, uh, find out which satellite will be seen by which radar at what time. Because they didn't have the 24-hour capability of tracking every single satellite yeah, back yes. then. So you also had to schedule, uh, like, which... There, I think there was just a single ground-based station, right? No, there were multiple... Uh, all over the world, there were ground-based stations, okay? But the thing is that you had to make sure that those ground stations are oriented in the proper direction at the proper time. And so that's why we actually used to prepare that information, but it took several hours to transmit that information to those ground stations because the communication systems were so slow. At that time, NASA was using something called 4800-bit block uh, for communication. There was no TCP, IP, or anything like that at that time, and everything was built around that, about uh, the customized hardware. But uh, even then, the communication was extremely slow. So that was one of the things. The other thing was that, actually, uh, one of the things I realized when I started working for NASA is that there is always a saying when, for anything complicated to say that, or, this, or anything simple to say that, oh, this is not radar science. Actually, you, you mean rocket science? Rocket science, yes. The actually the interesting part is that rocket science is the simplest thing once you know the math. But when you look at today's systems, which are dealing with people, they are way more complicated than any rocket science or anything related to space. The other thing I realized is that in space, things move very slowly, or they have to move very slowly. So actually, when, when the satellite is in an orbit, it's easy. But like there are like uh, weather satellites or communication satellites which they used to move around. Now there, to move them around, it is called something called maneuvers. One of the things you have to make sure with maneuvers is that they have to be extremely slowly done because otherwise the satellite can go out of spin, okay? And those are the type of things which a common person doesn't realize that yeah. in space things move very slowly. Very slowly relative to each other, but still very fast compared to the Earth, right? Yes, yes. 
True, yes, but uh, especially if you are forcing any change, that change has to be forced very slowly. That's why actually even today, when, uh, actually this is way later, but when I was looking at, I just happened to be lucky enough to see the astronaut training, and I saw that training, and they make the environment such a way that there is no way an astronaut can move fast or forget fast. Even the deliberate is fast for them. So, so this is the uh, big pool uh, underground. Under the, this is the big underwater training center that I, I was talking about. That underwater training center is just part of it. But there is even like uh, overwater things. Be, uh, they they uh, do the training, and it's almost like you are standing, and you are held by spaghetti noodles so everything moves so much that you have to be very careful when you are making any movement but anyway that's uh, uh, besides the point but uh, so orbit determination was interesting it's mostly mathematics and uh, so I did that uh, from 1972 till almost 1980 uh, in 1977 I changed the company because I was a contractor the contract went to a different company called Computer Sciences Corporation. So I moved with the contract, uh, with the work to that company, and did, I did that till 1980. And then I moved to what is called Network Control Center, which is really managing the tracking data relay satellites systems. It's a constellation today of almost a dozen satellites which are in space. And what they do is that now they have replaced all the ground antennas. So now you get, uh, each satellite can get 24-hour service. When we started, there was only one satellite. And uh, my job was really, uh, as a programmer, uh, working for the Network Control Center, which actually was like the uh, funnel for every everything because what uh, the, the tracking data relay system has several components to it one is naturally the scheduling system because there was only one so the satellites had to be scheduled when they can use a particular antenna then there is a network monitor which actually uh, sampled the data coming in to make sure everything was working properly then there is act track or acquisition tracking data, which really made sure that the orbit determination uh, and all those things are linked. And so what our job was really to provide them a, a uh, pathway to the satellite. And we did that where we interfaced with something called NASA communication system, which really is responsible for all the NASA, com all the mission networks. So, so uh, you kind of helped design and uh, implement and run the like the road through which communication kind of flows by communication i mean like if we say cars are the signal sent so you guys built the road network for communicating with satellites is that right yes uh, I, yes actually uh, in this particular case we uh, we were really doing for uh, network control system, it was really more like a, a scheduling system where we were scheduling resources for, for tra uh, tracking data relay satellite. But then in 1987, I moved to NASCOM and that's where we actually were responsible for designing the NASA communication uh, mission network. And actually the interesting part was that, uh, uh, like I said earlier, that they were using something called 4800-bit block, and it was working fine. But to run that, we needed, just at Goddard Space Flight Center, we needed more than 100 people, or almost 200 people. And uh, basically, uh, it also required everyone to have custom equipment, so which was very expensive. as. TCPIP came along, there was pressure for everyone to start using TCPIP. And uh, the problem was that NASA communication, our mission network has to be very secure. At that time, the security on TCPIP was not very good. So naturally, we could not use it for a while. And also, the other problem was that most of the projects had, and as well, had 
designed their own interface to the 4800-bit block. So basically then they needed to change that interface. They were very reluctant to do that. Because so because you had to change all the hardware and, and the whole supporting architecture, I'm guessing, which is not the way it is done today. I think one of the biggest reasons why SpaceX took off and also a New Zealand-based start, rocket startup whose name escapes me right now is because they most of their engineers were using off-the-shelf hardware and just modifying it. Just, I, I don't think like off-the-shelf hardware was even available to you guys at the time. And, no. Uh, and it has come a really long way in just in terms of hardware and yeah so yeah you you saying yeah yeah uh, there was nothing uh, off the shelf available at that time actually there was not even uh, off the shelf software at that time there were no tools at that time because the industry was really not very mature at that time about whether it is communication or satellite it's like Today, you can do a ground station for a satellite at 20% of the cost that it used to cost in those days. I think what many people don't really realize is that when the whole space race started, it was predominantly a government-based thing simply because the tools and the technology just simply did not exist and you guys kind of had to invent everything and then use it. Yeah, actually, uh, one of the things that you have to realize that the space race started really for the technological dominance as it related to defense. Basically, it was really to make sure that the rocket science is uh, really up to par compared between the two nations, Russia and the United States. Okay, And that's why it's kind of interesting that... Uh, the earth it's like in uh, we had this saying is that when democrats are in power most of the nasa resources are on earth science and when republicans are in power it's mostly on deep space network because deep space network provides more capabilities or research on that provides more capabilities for defense well uh, so really, even though it started out for the defense purposes, the focus naturally is both the ground as well as earth. And at that time, though, we had to do everything really custom because there was nothing available. Even today, even though people are saying that, oh, there are tools available and things like that, one of the things you have to remember is that even today's private industry in space is not using anything that was not financed by government at the beginning. Yeah, NASA funds uh, a lot of research projects as well across universities exactly. and technologies came yes. from that. Yes. And not only, but univers- that's only, uh, not, not only universities, but also they do even experiment with other things. And only time they will actually use it for a satellite and very rarely what we used to call bleeding edge technology uh, would be used for anything which is manned flight. So basically when that technology is proven by NASA, that is when the commercial entities take over. There is nothing that even though the commercial entities claim that they are doing it cheaper and whatever, the point is that they are doing it cheaper because somebody else has done the digging work for them. It's almost like, think about this way. You are building a building. Somebody else spent resources on a foundation. And so which means all the digging, all the concrete and all that major stuff, it's spent, uh, resources were spent by somebody else. And so now you are building a building which is much cheaper, much quicker to do. And that is what is happening now. And it should be that way that governments should not be in the business of doing anything except doing things that private industry cannot do. And that is what the modern NASA has been using. It's like that is the model NIH is using, all these government entities, that's what they are using. So you joined CSE and NASA around uh, 72, which is almost the end of the golden era of space and uh, the end of the space race wherein uh, Russia had pretty much given up on going to the moon and I think NASA still was figuring out what to do after moon. Before This is before the 
the space shuttle era so what was the atmosphere like around you in terms of not just uh, manned space flight but even just making this whole wide world of space is now accessible to us so what kind of research we can do what probes we can send so so what is the whole uh, just working atmosphere like around because i imagine at that uh, it being the peak of everything uh, there must be a bunch of talented and really passionate engineers who and scientists and everyone who's just really excited about space and couldn't wait for 2001 to happen and must have been a very happy times well it's kind of interesting that when you talk about nasa okay and scientists there are two types of scientists those who are geochemists or geophysicists okay they are very much interested in uh, moon or deep space network and then there are scientists who actually are more interested on earth part okay and they are two totally different types of scientists after 72 most of those missions were continuing okay what stopped was the manned missions and basically uh, there still were uh, plans for uh, skylab as well as there were two major things going on at that time with skylab and the space shuttle both were continuing because skylab was the first one but then the returnable bird it was space shuttle and so it was going to take enormous amount of money because skylab was just uh, it goes and it stays there and astronauts it's almost like mini uh, space yeah, station yeah it was an early version of the iss yeah, yeah it's a mini space station okay and but really uh, the budget were shrinking or uh, it wasn't expanding as fast as used to it used to be so they had to figure out a way to reduce the operational cost now you have to remember always one of the things that they have to look at it is that not as much about what it cost to build a satellite or system because that's a one time cost but what is the recurring cost is the operational cost maintenance cost so now we had all these ground stations all over the world and one of the things you have to remember is that each ground station okay needs at least 15 people no matter what actually there were some countries where their ground station was one of their most high tech uh, employer even though in many cases they were using paper tapes <laughs> because uh, to them it was high tech that's it okay but uh, it was costing nasa a lot of money and so that's how they uh, they decided to go with uh, tracking data relay satellite system because uh, that was going to make sure that it was going to reduce the operational cost of all these ground stations and the first satellite alone was able to cover 90% of the earth oh, okay yeah. that's that's huge huge like savings and yeah. in in the decades after moon after landing on the moon where like federal budget for nasa was dwindling i think it worked out in your favor because you kind of had more wiggle room to pursue other projects by bringing down the these operational costs yeah and actually the other part which people forget is that moon was great but it was really more a pr thing yeah. okay it it really did not after first couple of moon missions it didn't bring any new technology but the skylab or space station or shuttle they brought new products new technologies and so in effect even though they cost a lot of money they were uh, i wouldn't say cost effective but in the long run they didn't cost as much to the country or mankind as what their physical cost was because of the side products that they helped create actually think about this way all the nanotechnology has been the result of uh, what is happening uh, in space station so what nasa focused after that is really how to reduce the cost while still doing what their vision was and that's so what was the big vision what is the like 20 year plan for nasa after the moon landing you had skylab uh, in the plan and you also had shuttle in uh, the pipeline so space, what is the bigger grander vision uh, for nasa space station and hubble space uh, telescope where the big and uh, now J- jwst are the big products 
that are projects that they were looking at because Hubble Space Station was supposed to be looking at the deep space, okay, and figure out how the stars are born, how, how they live, and how they die. While on the other side, uh, naturally you couldn't go to the stars to start with, and right now we've been lucky enough to go to Jupiter. But And on the other side, the space station has been very helpful in doing a lot of research which can be used on Earth. So those were the big projects that they were looking at even 20, 25, 30 years back. That That's what they want to do. But naturally, it takes a long time to for the technology to mature to be able to do those things. It's like now the next project is really manned mission to Mars. But for that, you need to do a lot of research on rocket technology, as well as how to create artificial environment on moon or on Mars and things like that. Because one of the things is, is that how do you create uh, the gravity in the bird that goes to the Mars? Yeah, because uh, there was an interesting experiment done I think two years ago by an astronaut called Scott Kelly and his twin. The twin was on Earth and Scott was on the ISS for more than a year and the purpose of that experiment was just to focus on what kind of effect it has on the human body in such long durations in space and if we really want to have a shot at going to Mars I think human and life sciences also a lot of research needs to be no, done in, in that area well, as well. So That's true. But also the major problem is that how do you shorten that period? Because irrespective of anything, uh, you have to remember that when Scott Kelly came back, okay, uh, he actually had the best medical treatment on Earth. Okay. Yeah, when you go to Mars, there is no there medical is no treatment. Hospital. You are the only person yes, there. Right. So not only you have to be trained about how to handle it, you have to make sure you have all the medication needed and all those things. And main thing is that you have to have a some kind of place which actually has Earth's atmosphere, okay? And because there is no water, there is no oxygen, somehow you have to be able to generate it from whatever you have. It's like if you sweat, if you pee, some of that has to be turned into water and whatever, maybe uh, the ground somehow it has to be cultivated or this, uh, somehow made sure that you can grow potatoes or whatever food there. So there are a lot of things that you have to learn. Actually, uh, it's almost like that movie Martian. That oh yeah, that's one of my most favorite yeah, movies yeah. and one of my most favorite books ever. Yeah. So, if So guys, if you haven't read or yeah. seen the movie The Martian by... Uh, it's The book is by Andy Weir. Please do watch it. It, it gives you a great insight into what kind of challenges so, we will face going into Mars. And if, if you are a... It, it's just a great movie, even if you are not a space nerd. The interesting thing is that mostly all of those things have to be done. But to reach that point is not very easy. It's like, it always reminds me of when I first went to see Epcot Center, which was also very futuristic. And then actually when I was... No, I I actually remember this. Sorry for going on a sidetrack, but this was when I was probably five or six years old and we had gone to Kennedy Space Center in Florida. And uh, that was actually my... first ever look at rockets and space and just appreciating what my own granddad does and uh, that that is i would say that is probably the seed that that is probably when the seed was planted in me the seed of just being a space and astronomy nerd and i still kind of have vague memories yeah from that trip to kennedy yeah so as you're saying yeah, so I was saying is that when you look at what Epcot Center had about how the future would look like, or when you look at what uh, Epcot Center, basically, uh, the technology just took over everything that Epcot Center thought would be, because <coughs> the technology has become way advanced than what Epcot. On the other hand, Space Odyssey 2001, okay, uh, basically... It concentrated a lot more on that computer, yeah. but the computer did not go in that direction that you wanted. 
but it went in the direction of a lot more being user-friendly because the computer there almost behaves like a human being. Yeah. And so uh, it took a different direction. And of course, computer even today is not as smart as human beings. That's definitely a true statement. The future, who knows? Uh, actually, uh, so what is what is your best guess for a manned mission to Mars? Will we see it during the, at least my lifetime? Uh, yeah, they, they, they keep saying about 2030-2035 period. My feeling is that it will be most probably around 2050. They will do that by 2050. Not necessarily. So, no, so Elon Musk is off by like 20-25 years at least. I think so, because the technology is still not there for us to go to Mars yet. It's like if you want to put somebody in a rocket and give them food for the next five years, okay, and just touch the Mars and come back, maybe that can happen, okay? But That can probably even happen now. Yeah, but that's, that's my point. But then, no, it won't happen because you don't have in a rocket large enough to give anybody five years for worth of food, okay? But the point is that to really have a meaningful stay on Mars requires a lot more than that. And the technology is not there yet for that. Because uh, just think about it this way. It took several shuttle missions just to build the space station. Yeah. Now, at least on space station, you don't have to worry about food. But growing any food. If you go to Mars, first of all, you have to have a hospital. You have to have a food, uh, some uh, mechanism to make food. Uh, a lot of other things. And so, uh, just even if you want to build a tent there, which can do all those things, like in Martian, it will take several trips to go there and just do one little thing at a time. For that. First of all, it's going to take still a lot of technology just to be able to go there with some kind of luggage. Yeah, the, the, I think the first, the biggest hurdle is just, just sending, just shipping a lot of stuff there. Yeah. And like, because FedEx doesn't exist. You can't yeah. FedEx to Mars. <laughs> you have to make a rock, like a delivery system where you can send at I least a borderline guess is at least 100 tons, which is what no, Elon Musk is... Uh, planning and, and multiple like, missions cargo missions to yeah, mars before you can even think of sending yeah, humans and it's most of all is way more than 100 tons because number one it has to be sturdy enough to handle whatever wind they have I'm sure oh mars have. doesn't have a lot of wind i think that was one of the biggest that was only the only like technical flaw in the Martian is uh, Martian Mar- Mars does have winds, but it doesn't have because the atmosphere is thin. It doesn't have a lot of. It can't tip over a rocket. That's the point. Uh, yes, but uh, it it has gravity. Okay, uh, so basically, uh, it still has to be a lot sturdier than if it were in space. Yeah. Okay, but the other part is that uh, you have naturally you have to have several trips. And then you have to have some way of uh, building a mini house, okay, almost on Earth, which can be uh, then expanded. Basically, it will be. Yeah, it will have to be inflated. And I think the first colonizer, the first settlers on Mars would be robots because robots would get most of the support infrastructure in place and even when everyone says no elon musk will take us to mars 2030 or whatever the time frame might be a good guess is you will at least need four to five robot missions to mars wherein the robots will do all of the work of the setting of Uh, human life support infrastructure and that's first of all to do uh, create robots of that kind will take time and then to create the uh, technology for creating the weather and all those systems, because you still need going to need people who can breathe. You still need somehow a way of in that tent growing food and all those things. So that's going to take a, a long time. And then after that, basically, uh, and that's why they're saying that moon colony will be, have to be done first. 
as a prototype for Mars colony. Yeah, because you could get to the moon in three days versus like four exactly. to six months exactly. for Mars. The uh, moon doesn't have any atmosphere either. So you can uh, do all those uh, uh, experiments on moon before you go to Mars. And right now we don't even have a plan to go to moon for several years. Yeah, but because NASA just like five or six years ago just shut down the whole moon plan. That's right. Yeah. And that's what I'm saying. So, can you just talk about a little bit about how the federal, like how NASA budgets have kind of come down and there is not much. In fact, uh, just recently we had the 33rd anniversary, I think, of the challenge, uh, the Challenger space yeah. shuttle crash. And just can you please just talk about that? Oh, uh, Challenger crash was one of the most traumatic things that we all witnessed at NASA. It, also, it was the most advertised launch after the first space shuttle because it had a teacher in it. So that was the first civilian uh, on space shuttle. And it was very controversial because the temperature was very cold. There are a lot of rumors and a lot of uh, things. But at the end of the day, uh, what happened is that the O-ring cracked and that caused uh, uh, the shuttle to explode. One of the things that I always feel proud about it is uh, not the, 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 the failure part, but the fact that they investigated it thoroughly and instead of hanging a guilty person, they actually used it as a lesson to learn from it. Not only they solved the O-ring problem, but they also created or designed a system where if anything like that happens again, the astronauts will be ejected and basically then they will just come to ground. Yeah. Yeah, which is what happened at the Soyuz launch, the very recent Soyuz launch, like three or four months yeah. ago, wherein three astronauts had to abort a launch mid-flight yes. and they made it safely back to Earth. Yes. So that was a result of the Challenger crash. Yes, that's true. Then the same thing happened uh, when, uh, I forgot the name, uh, when Kalpana Chawla, that, uh, that shuttle... Columbia, burnt, I uh, think. Yeah, yeah, that burnt on, uh, <coughs> wow, Wilsonville. And uh, because the heat was enormous and a few of the tiles had fallen off. and uh, During launch, I think. No, no. It, it, they had fallen off while coming back. Okay. But the problem was that, and the heat is so intense that that was enough to uh, really kill it. And again, uh, they were able to fix it. And uh, now you got the uh, varieties of crazy glues, which uh, really are used as... Yeah, not many people know this, in fact, but uh, crazy... Uh, super glue was a NASA invention, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. And it also, it is also used to treat... Uh, I learned this on QI very recently. It is also used to treat uh, cuts and wounds on yeah. humans yeah. because it really makes skin stick together. Yeah. So if you've ever used super glue and like seen, felt your fingers stick together, yeah. it's not a bug. It's actually a feature of that yes. glue. It just happens that it is also good at joining to other things, but it's a feature that your skin sticks together. I think that's the irony of it. It's like Teflon. Teflon was creation of NASA. That... Uh, so, but anyway, that's not the point. The point is that uh, NASA doesn't go about figuring out all these things, but uh, they were just side products of what NASA does. And, uh, but the budget has really caused a lot of projects to be canceled, like JWST had to be extended, and uh, Moon Mission has been postponed. And again, it's a matter of focus, because NASA doesn't do things, our government doesn't do things just for the sake of doing it. Unless they see a cost-effective reason to do it, they will not do it. So at this point, the government does not see a particular urgency for going to Mars mission or for that reason then moon missions because it does not buy them or they don't feel that they have a really strong financial or defense reason. But Trump is all for Space Force. So, yeah, on the other hand. he has budgeted anything. And in his case, the Space Force could simply be that the rockets which are fast enough to attack, he has not defined yeah. what it means, okay? 
So really, it's almost like Reagan's <coughs> Star Wars defense system. Okay, they don't know what it means. Okay, so it's, it's just a bunch of words yeah, designed yeah. to make PR and like uh, designed to least, make headlines. At least at this point, that's how it seems like. So who knows? So during uh, your long career at NASA, I'm sure you met a lot of famous astronauts and famous rock stars, and uh, you also met. an astronaut who went to the moon so how like can you talk about that because i'm always in awe when you mention of you meeting and having interacted with and also being friends with some of these astronauts and like just overall cool people in my opinion well actually astronauts i when i won the manfred awareness award at that time it was given to me by john young and bob crippen who were the first astronauts for the shuttle mission also john young was one of the moon astronauts who actually walked on the moon and here's a quick uh, trivia about john young i'm not sure if this is true or not maybe you could confirm but they said to john young that you cannot take any loose objects or any in like earth based food and he just had to eat whatever space goo that they had at that time whatever space food they had at that time and uh, the myth or the legend is that he snuck in a hamburger in his in the pocket of his uh, space suit and there's nothing really that nasa could do once he was in space about it they're like okay we told you not to do it but he just went ahead and, and did it Well, John Young was a uh, little irreverent about a lot of things, and uh, uh, so that's why he was so popular. But uh, this story, uh, some say it was a roast beef sandwich, some say it was a hamburger. Nobody knows what exactly it was, but that's a story going along, uh, going around everywhere. So you have to just say that yeah, it fits his personality, but that doesn't mean that. he did or he didn't do it nobody knows that okay except john young or people who were there with him at that place but uh, i met john young i met him since there were a couple of other times when i met him and bob crippen i met only at the uh, manfred awareness award but then actually after that there was a banquet and at that time i met whole lot of astronauts okay this must have been a fanboy moment for you as well right actually it was funny i was just a photographer uh, i took pictures of uh, my wife with all those astronauts okay and i was just a photographer for her. but uh, it was fun uh, it was at uh, aerospace museum and it was it was uh, so at that time i met a lot of astronauts uh, too but my favorite is the person who worked with me he was my colleague he was my customer before that and his name was Ed Lawless and he is the first person who heard Neil Young say his famous Neil Armstrong you mean Armstrong say his famous things that this uh, is one small step for a man but one large giant step for mankind because he was the voice operator at that time and uh, So then he is the one who uh, distributed that statement all over the world. I'm I'm just like my jaw has like dropped to the floor right now. This is on audio so you can you guys can't see this but my jaw has dropped to the floor just hearing about all of these stories and just, just all of these legends of space and like have you met Buzz Aldrin? Uh no. By that time he had retired. Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, they had retired. Uh, the original astronauts, they went back to their military thing and then they retired. By the time I really was into NASA, like by 19 mid 70s or like that, they had gone back to their old jobs. So John Young was perhaps the senior most astronaut when uh, I understood all those things. So I know this very fun fact, which is which has gone around in our family as well. So apparently, you met Shah Rukh Khan during the production of Swades when he was they actually shot at Goddard, and uh, weren't you pretty much the only Indian there? Like when they were shooting it, or uh, I like I don't really remember the story because I was no, very no, young. No, no, so no, just just elaborate on it. No, there were a lot of Indians. What happened is that. I I didn't even know that there was this Swadesh shooting was going on. If if I had known, I would have. But 
bunch of people. I, I had a lot of Indian colleagues, and they came and told me about it. And then uh, the day when it was there was shooting, they all dressed up. Otherwise, they would be in their blue jeans and t-shirts. But this day, they were all in their suits and like that. But Naturally, I didn't know. So I was in my regular clothes, just a dress shirt and a dress pant, and I just happened to have a meeting at Goddard. So I went there, and um, in that building, there was a lot of commotions. So I finished my meeting, came down, and then somebody asked me, would you like to be in this movie? And uh, I said, what is this movie about? And they said, oh, there is this movie called Swadesh, and we are shooting. And... I said, sure, why not? And it just happened that now you know that shooting, it's not something like play where you just continuously do that. So they were setting up the set and whatever, and uh, Shah Rukh Khan was sitting there by himself. And somehow I'm really surprised that nobody was approaching him. I almost felt pity on him. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like he was the only outsider there because you're shooting at NASA and he had no clout over there. This is no, a normal no, citizen no, there. It's like most all the people were afraid of approaching him. and uh, So I just went and talked to him and asked for his autograph. And uh, he gave me the autograph. And uh, I, that was, that uh, he talked to me for 10 minutes. He, he was a very polite person. Uh, I was very impressed with how polite he was and how he was following all the rules there and everything. And then I was, when the shot started, I was in the movie and they just asked me to, it didn't matter what I said, just say something. Of course, when the movie came, all I saw was my shirt, but I was in movie. Yeah, you have an uncredited role in Swadesh. That's right. So uh, now that uh, space has become a very democratic thing in the sense that costs have come down, SpaceX, obviously everyone knows, is also a New Zealand-based startup whose name escapes me right now, but I'll put it in the description below, who has in brought down, like, SpaceX launch, a typical SpaceX launch costs something like $60 million versus this New Zealand-based rocket can launch CubeSats and other small satellites for 4 or $5 million, which opens up space to a whole host of applications. Also, our own ISRO has announced manned missions, the Gaganyan missions and they want to source as much parts locally as possible so what do you think going forward where like where the whole space thing is going and where india might be in the space well i would say india is going to be competing with on the launch business it is going to compete with spacex and all these other guys because india is still going to be cheaper than any of them and india has actually proven that they are as reliable as any of them. I'm glad now that India is allowing the private industry to manufacture items for government. It's not anymore Hindustan Aeronautics monopoly because that is the only way to expand your base for high-end manufacturing. And uh, my feeling is that that is also one of the reasons why India is in the space business. Of course, there is uh, other reasons which are like with the weather satellites, the education satellites, and the most important is spy satellites. Because actually, it's kind of funny that they used to not tell us it's a spy satellite. You need to be really careful about what information you disclose here because this is going on the internet. I'm sure you don't have a security clearance anymore, but I don't think you're allowed to disclose whatever happened in your job. Yeah, Yeah. so uh, all we knew was that, oh, there's this one big launch that is going on and you can't talk about it. That's it, okay? And so... We knew that what it was when they said you can't talk about it, but naturally we didn't know what its capabilities are or anything like that. But uh, so not only so basically, space has a lot more use for for both the military as well as civilian. Uh, for India, uh, the added advantage is naturally the cost because. India is really, it's almost like what Japan did with electronics or China is doing with manufacturing. India is not doing it with space that they... Do you really think so that we will bring down development and launch costs to a a very, very insanely low level so that India could really become the next space power? Well, 
Well, there's a big difference between space power. No, not just a space power, but a, a hub for all things space. Again, I don't know whether it will be for all things space, but uh, yes, India will, India will be a big player in the space industry, no question about it, simply because of the cost factor that uh, uh, naturally it's like, uh, look at Mangalayan, okay, it cost India way a fraction of what it cost uh, United States. It, a, there was a joke going around in WhatsApp uh, during the time that Mangalayan was launched saying that <laughs> it was per kilometer, on a per kilometer basis it was cheaper than a rickshaw. And I'm, I'm true, that's, that's true, but that's my point is that uh, that's because now uh, there are, the basic research is already done. Okay, so what India is doing is now following whatever is available, so which makes it a lot easier. So India can be a big player in terms of, that's what I'm saying, it's like almost like what China is in manufacturing. India could be in space business because of the uh, price factor. And the other part which India has, which is that India has a lot of smart people, and basically they can be a lot more innovative. One of the things you have to remember is that Indians are very big innovators. It's like, I don't know if you ever saw, uh, I forgot the movies, they, whatever, outsourced. And so Indians are big innovators. So the problem is that in many cases their innovation is out of need rather than out of pure science. But That's called jugad, by the way. Innovation out of need is jugad. Whatever. But the point is that uh, so India can be a big player simply because of the cost factor and because of the innovations they will make to reduce the cost. Again, I don't know whether India will be a big innovator in terms of pushing the boundaries of technology or not. But do you think we can definitely do it cheaper and at a much larger scale, basically? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely they can do that yeah so this has been a long one folks and uh, if you're still around listening at this uh, point of time thank you very much this has been a really long one with my granddad the nasa scientist and uh, so thank you very much for agreeing to come on the show thank you very much for visiting us in india and uh, it's the 50th anniversary of the moon landing uh, this July. Yes. So something about that? Uh, yes, it will be. It's like it, it was uh, that time I was in India and it was very exciting at that time. And then when I actually started working for NASA and there were, I think, first mass uh, moon mission I supported was, uh, I think, Apollo 14. So I supported both Apollo 14 and 15. And that was very exciting to do that. So Because when the first man landed on the moon, you were here in India, but you had absolutely zero idea that by the time the last moon missions would be happening, you would actually go there and support. Wow, that is an amazing story and what an amazing note to end on. And I, I hope the next 50 years of space exploration continue in the same way. And yeah, just just thank you very much for being on the show. Oh, I, thank you very much, and I hope uh, the next 50 years are as exciting for NASA and space research as it has been last 50, 60 years. Thank you.